The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. Your emotional intelligence is such an important part of your work as a lawyer um, because, you know, with the rise of artificial intelligence, that client wants to see a human being. You have the AI to support you with the law, but those skills of empathy, trust, judgment, being able to weigh things up in the balance, understand where people are coming from, where you're coming from, are really important. And I think we should be doing more around that in legal education. No AI program is going to be able to look you in the eye and say, I've got your back. Hello, I'm Kevin Poulter and welcome to this episode of The Hearing Podcast. Today we're joined by Elizabeth Rimmer. Elizabeth is a CEO of LawCare and also a former lawyer. Elizabeth stepped away from the law back in the 90s, having trained at and worked as a clinical negligence solicitor with Lee Day. We talk about the way that that's changed over the past few years and what the future might hold. But we're really here to talk about the work of law care and what it's doing to support members of the profession from solicitors, barristers and legal executives, as well as law students in developing their own resilience, mental health and well-being. The Hearing Elizabeth, thank you for joining us today. And I should say, I, we've known each other for a little while now. Mm-hmm. Um, we usually see each other at various conferences or events, uh, usually in passing. And one of the things that we always talk about is the quality of the biscuits. So I've brought in some hobnobs for us, especially today, which I think are like the, the, a pretty good standard of biscuit. Um, but, but, but in your experience, uh, having been around various law firms and events, what's your favorite biscuit? Oh, that is a very difficult question. I think the best biscuits I've had in the law have been in an American law firm where they have an on-site bakery. Oh. And they cook... Well, if the hot aren't good enough, I'll the take them away. on site. So they were chocolate chip cookies. And I was sitting in this room and I was literally the only person who ate them. <laughs> uh, and I really wanted to sneak a few more into my handbag and take them away with me, but I didn't. I was very restrained. The Law Society of England and Wales also do a very good biscuit in a very nice presentation box. Um, and there's always a high quality range of offerings there. Well, that's your funding secured for the next uh, few years. <laughs> so we'll, we'll come back now to, to you and, and talk about really why you're here. Now, you are the CEO of LawCare. And uh, we'll talk more about law care later, but you've, you've got another background in the law. Uh, mm-hmm. and you, you don't happen to have just come into this job by accident. Um, but in some ways, it seems that you have come into it by accident, because I think from my research, you're a zoologist. Yes, I have a degree in zoology. Uh, Some people might think that might qualify you well for a life in the law. Uh, But I actually, I didn't really study whole animals. I did cell and molecular biology. Um, And I landed up with a zoology degree because I wanted to be in the department with a specific professor who I was very... um, uh, taken with in terms of you know where he was okay, with the science with yeah no 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 he was much he's he's funnily enough he's he's the father of a good friend um so that's how I landed up with a zoology degree but I didn't actually really do anything around animals um I was looking at stuff down a microscope or even smaller than that yeah so not not necessarily your obvious route to law is that no what, what, what sparked apart from the, the lecture what sparked um, the interest well I landed up doing zoology because biology was my favorite a level and then I thought about staying in science and and be doing a PhD uh, but I decided that probably wasn't for me and I'd always had an interest in the law I think as a young person I was very caught up by the Birmingham 
six and the Guildford four and reading books by Ludwig Kennedy about miscarriages of justice. Mm. So I always had that kind of interest and I think I thought I'm going to go into the law and I'm going to solve lots of people's problems and, and fix miscarriages of justice. So I'd always had that interest. Um, so then I applied to do what was then the common professional exam. So I did that and then became went to do the old law society finals yeah. i think it was the last year that did that course okay. tells you how old i am uh and then i i became a solicitor yeah and what what so, so the interest came from outside of the family i guess it yes was, it, it was just a personal interest in social yeah, justice and... yeah there were no um lawyers in my family my dad's a civil engineer um i think i always felt a sense of you need to stand up for people and people need to have a voice and they need to be heard and felt that, you know, there wasn't enough of that. And going into the law, I also thought the law would just be very interesting yeah. in the kinds of range of things that come your way. Um, I was very interested at that time in sort of human rights. Um, and then I developed an interest in medical negligence. Um, so I landed up working at Lee Day. Um, so yeah, it was really a sort of sense of social, uh, justice, but I believe that's very common for many people come into the law for yeah. those reasons. I don't think you necessarily wake up and think I want to be a convincer or I want to be a commercial lawyer. You come in it for other reasons. Mm. Um, and there are so many varieties of ways and areas you can work in. I think once you're in there, you start seeing the range of options yeah. that there are. Yeah. And I'm going to pause for a moment because, like I say, I've known you for a few years now mm. and it's always taken me, well, it's been a bit of a challenge to place that accent. Mm. And we had a chat before we started today mm. and now I know a lot more about it, but your dad's partially responsible for this uh, yeah. difficult to place. Yes. So, because my dad is a civil engineer, um, we, I grew up living overseas. So I was born in London. I was born in Woolwich. So I'm from southeast London. And I didn't live in the UK until I was almost 16. So I was six weeks old, found myself living in Libya. I don't really wow. remember that. We lived in East and yeah. West Pakistan, Panama, Trinidad and Tobago, the US, Canada. So I, I always went to school wherever we lived. Um, so I went to a range of international schools. And then in Trinidad, I went to, I did the old 11 plus, yeah. and I went to the local girls grammar school. And I was the first non-Trinidadian in the country to, to go to that school wow. um, because most of the foreign kids mm. went to the international schools, mm. but I went to the local school. So that's why I have a sort of mishmash of an accent, but yeah. I am British. And do you think having that sort of that international aspect to your growing up has, has actually had an, another impact on your, on your life or your career or... Yeah. Just your outlook, I guess. Yeah, I think what it... I know it sounds very corny to say it, but I think what it you learn from that experience is that actually people are the same. You know, as Sherlock said, if you prick me, do I not bleed? Um, that we all might look different and have different ways of speaking and different outlooks on various things, but yeah. internally and emotionally and mentally, human beings are the same. We all feel about things in very similar ways. And that actually there's a lot more commonality between people than there is difference. So I think that was a great thing. I, I think it's given me a very global outlook on the world, uh, able to sort of find interest in all kinds of things. Mm. Um, we were chatting earlier that, you know, I've recently discovered that my upbringing is what's described as third culture, uh, which I didn't even know existed. It does sound like a slur. <laughs> it do well, in fact, when we moved back to England and I went to school here, so I was finishing off my O-levels when we moved back, 
Um, there was a big divide for me because I hadn't watched the same telly as everyone else. In fact, I called it TV. And so I'd grown up watching lots of American TV programs. So we came back here and, you know, things like Only Fools and Horses and Coronation Street and all these things. I'd never watched them. So I wasn't immediately able to connect with people because talking about telly was a big thing at school. So I sort of had that gap. Um... And also because I didn't sound the same. I always remember a girl in my class. Uh, I had to read Shakespeare outside out aloud. And she said, Shakespeare doesn't sound the same when you read it because you don't have an English accent. And I was very affronted by that. Um, so, yeah, I had this sort of upbringing. I think I went to seven schools. Um, so And I think it's always made me a bit of a joiner in it as being like the new person in the group. I'd be the new person in the class or joining halfway through the year. So you sort of had to get throw yourself into things. Otherwise, you wouldn't have any friends or anyone to sit with at lunch. So I think I think that's been helpful in um, some aspects of, of work and the things that I enjoy that, you know, seeking out people has always been part of that yeah and, and and talking about being uh, sort of the first and throwing yourself into things i think you were the first trainee or certainly the first intake of trainees at lee day yeah uh, but you came to that in a slightly yes. obscure route as well yep so i so i um i did my cpe and then i no before i went to law school i spent a year working as a patent searcher oh. in the science reference library okay, yes so hence your science background yes because well. of my science background because i i decided i was almost going to stay on and do this phd then i changed my mind and so I had to apply for law school. So I had a year doing that. And then um, I got my first job as a trainee. I think it was an article clerk, actually, um, at a mm. firm that I was there by then interested in personal injury work. Uh, so I started there. But I started in the property department. And yeah. within a few months, I realized that this really wasn't for me. And I yeah. saw an ad in the Law Society Gazette for a transferring articled clerk. This is the days before the internet to go and work at Lee Day. And I had had my sights on Lee Day because mm. at that time, they were one of the few firms that did clinical negligence and they had a big profile with human rights and things like that. So I applied for that job, went and had an interview with Sarah Lee, who was the founding partner. And, and Kate Connoisseur. And a cake connoisseur, and her brother is a restaurateur, so we had quite a few nice meals along the way there. Um, yeah, and so I landed up getting the job, and I transferred to um, Lee Day, and I was the first trainee at the firm. So how um, big was the firm at the time, then? Uh, so ooh, there were maybe 10 or 11 partners wow. there, maybe 40, 50 people, so it was okay. on the Grays Inn Road. We were in two buildings, mm. so there was the sort of medical negligence PI bit of the firm, and then there was all the human rights side of the firm and big cases that was headed up by Martin Day, because Sarah had come from Bymans, mm. um, and I think she'd brought him with her. So yeah, so I was there, for, and I qualified there and, and stayed on working in Sarah's team. Um, but it was great. I did loads of fascinating work on things like child migrants. So I spent a summer down at the National Records in Kew. Yeah. I had to go through all the parliament, parliamentary debates back in the sort of 30s and 40s about why we shipped children to Australia and Canada and look at um, shipping records, all kinds wow. of... It was a fascinating way to spend yeah. the summer. Yeah. Um, worked on, did quite a lot of inquests. You might remember the story of Christopher Clunas, who was a schizophrenic who stabbed... Um, a woman called Jane Zito's husband on a tube platform, oh, right. and there was a big claim around uh, looking at his inquest and the story, the not the story, the the background mm. to that and how that came to happen. But very much, 
sort of the reason why you set out in this path in the first place. Yeah. Sort of looking again at uh, uh, society as much yeah. as the law. Yeah, and it was it was you know I really enjoyed all of that. It was fascinating. We, there was really interesting cases that came through um, Lee Day, and then but the main part of the work I did was clinical negligence. So I think it was about this time as well. I might be wrong that you also did an MA in medical law and. Ethics is that whilst you were working, or was that no. before you started? Yeah, so I so I qualified and I was working, and actually in hindsight, I look back now is I found aspects of the work quite difficult. I think the emotional impact of the work, and that you know you were acting for people who'd had very traumatic things happen to them, um, emotional stories, and. I remember thinking, I'm not sure I can hack this for 25 years. It's going to kill me. Um, And I think at that time, there wasn't really the awareness about the impact the work could have on you. So I was starting to question whether this is what I really wanted to do. And I think I felt some frustrations that civil litigation was really about financially compensating people for loss. And that a lot of the people that came in to see us you could never compensate them for what had happened. What they really wanted was somebody to tell them why their child had been injured or mm. that their husband had been killed on the operating table. Mm. And actually, the system isn't designed to deliver that. They're never going to have their day in court. And so I started to sort of think, hmm, is this for me? So I thought, well, always being this sort of thinking about your career and your future, I thought, well, I'll do an MA in medical law and ethics. I'll have a year out. It'll look good on my CV yeah, <laughs> if yeah. I want to go back into the law. Um, and so that's how I landed up um, doing that. Um, so, and then I never went back to the law after that. Um, because while I was doing my MA, I got a job as an office assistant for mm. an international Alzheimer's charity. Um, because my mum, well, not my mum, my best friend's mum was the chair, nepotism. Uh, but by no then, against it, yeah, and by then I'd had a, I had a mortgage and all that kind of stuff because I qualified. So I did this job and the guy I, who ran the organisation, one day he collapsed at work and actually it was stress related. But again, back in the 90s, I didn't really see any yeah, of this yeah. and he never came back. And so I was left sort of holding the fort literally working one day a week I think and then by the time I finished my MA they said oh you know would you like to come and work here and I sort of thought "Mm, the path not taken Mm. it's an international organization it sort Mm. of chimed with my background and there was lots of travel so and I was young I was in my 30s so I thought oh I'll do this and so I never went back to law and that's how I landed up in the voluntary sector so you know had he never collapsed Mm. you know I may never have landed up on this route I don't know um I'm thinking about the sort of the medical law and ethics and, and the clinical negligence side of things. And you said that people, what people want, um, they can't always get, particularly mm. in these sorts of cases. Um, there's, a, there's been a lot in the press over the last uh, couple of months about the NHS and about really the, the amount of, uh, or the value in cases that have been brought against the NHS for medical negligence, clinical negligence, other, other issues. Um, and just just how much that is, and it's sort of tens of billions of pounds. Now, do do I've heard various lawyers talking on the news and, and in the news about it, saying, "Well, this is the only way that they can get some sort of compensation." What they really want are answers, but they can't get answers, so they'll take the cash. Is that what your experience was as well? Was it that people were looking for money, or was it more about penalising somebody, or or? just pointing the finger so having somebody to to take the blame yeah I think my experience was that 
people wanted answers. I mean, I distinctly remember people would come in with their medical records in a couple of carrier bags mm. that they'd managed to get hold of. Mm. Um, and they wanted to know why this had happened. And and then, I don't know if it's any better now, because you know we're talking a long time yeah, ago, yeah. it would take a really long time for these cases to come to a conclusion. Meanwhile, that person can't move on with their life and it becomes the main focus of their life. So they can't grieve or they can't come to terms with the injury or what's happened. So it puts a huge amount of strain on them and their family relationships. Um, and I, I mean, yeah, I think stepping back from it now, I think that a system where you could perhaps have uh, the party sit down and talk about what happened and explain what happened and maybe have a no-fault system of compensation might be a better outcome for mm. people. I mean, if you look at the airline industry and how safe that is, that's because there's an open, transparent investigation of every single airline accident. Mm. And that then you're building up systems that are about preventing that from happening again. Um, and there were lots of, I mean, I remember one case we did of a, a woman who'd had a baby and she developed a post, um, a, an infection after giving birth and she needed antibiotics. And instead of giving her antibiotics, they injected her with um, potassium, I think. And she had a cardiac arrest and was left brain injured. So that was a simple mistake. I'm sure now there are much better procedures, but that's a sort of an example where there should be protocols around how these things are given. And I think there's a lot more of that now. Yeah, so I mean, I think from a human point of view, the, you know, the system perhaps, I don't know enough about the history of the development of civil litigation, but it wasn't designed, I don't think, for these kinds of mm. situations. It's been applied to that, mm. that it would be a better outcome for those people. If we're there to serve their interests, I don't think they're necessarily served by a lengthy case where at the end of it, they may never even see the person who, you know, and, the, and looking at it from the doctor's point of view, no one sets out that day for these things to happen. There's often a systematic failure or a series of events that have, you know, the no one could find the keys to the operating theater or whatever it was. Uh, we had a case like that too. Um, and that's a system failure mm. and that person gets caught up in it. So I think, I think there's a lot to be learned and maybe that's an area that I'm sure there are people looking at that. I don't know. I'm not yeah. in that space anymore, but. But, but what, everything you're saying kind of rings true now with your work with law care. Um, mm. looking at prevention, looking at getting, preventing these things from happening to start with, mm. looking at the systems that are in place, looking at mm. uh, education as much as anything else. So uh, for those people uh, who, do, who aren't familiar, um, introduce us to Law Care and the work that it does. So Law Care is a charity that promotes and supports good mental health and well-being in the, the legal community throughout the UK and Ireland. We're cross-professional. We actually grew out of an initiative of the Law Society of England and Wales, who back in the 90s were worried about how much solicitors were drinking as a way of coping with the pressures of, of life in the law. So over time, we've, we've developed and grown beyond just um, supporting lawyers with addiction issues. Um, and I think we're now we're here to provide support, but a big part of what we want to do and are beginning to do is we were, really want to drive some change in legal education and practice. Think about the culture in law. How can we make law 
and the environment we're all in a better place to work so that people are thriving in the law, not just surviving. Because there's lots of data that shows that lawyers have higher rates of stress, anxiety, and depression for all those well-known reasons. The way lawyers think and approach things, those thinking styles around pessimism and overthinking and perfectionism, um, the culture, the long working hours culture, the billable hour, um, difficult relationships in the workplace, all of these things almost create a perfect storm. And I think the challenge is, while mental health and well-being is going so much higher up the agenda, is we want to use this moment to think, okay, well, what are we going to do that's more than just putting a sticking plaster over mm -hmm. this? What are we going to do to make things better longer term? Because the challenge will come that it may become harder to attract people into the law. Uh, the world of work is changing. The expectations of younger people coming into the workplace are very different. Yeah. Um, the profile of people in the workplace is very different. I was at a meeting earlier today. Somebody told me there are now five generations That's in right. the average workplace. Yeah. Um, and what's happening is that the birth rate's lowering. So the younger people coming in are dropping. You've got older people. So the whole mm. um, environment is so different. And the legal profession needs to catch up with that um, to stay relevant and current and continue. Because we need, we want a wide range of people coming into the law because, you know, ultimately it sort of upholds everything we take for granted in civil society, yeah. you know? And, and, and there is change and, and mm. uh, that, that should be acknowledged. But uh, what, what I, I found so fascinating, uh, particularly about the work that you do, is, is how it's, like I say, how it's evolved, mm. that it, it has moved in a relatively short period of time from this drinking culture um, and, and uh, alcoholism being probably the, the main a reason that people would contact you or seek support uh, through sort of the drugs culture, I guess, through the, the 90s and, and, and 2000s. And then now, this renaissance, not renaissance, but this move towards well-being and mindfulness and, and looking after your, your own health um, and, and mental health uh, as much as, as physical health. Um, you, you came in, what, so six years ago? Five years ago. Five years ago, mm -hmm. thank you. Um, and... Even in that short period of time, there's been a lot of movement. What 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 did you face when you first joined Lawcare, and and how have you changed that? So I think when I first came to Lawcare, I think there'd been a huge amount of work done in sort of uh, trying to persuade professional bodies and stakeholders that this was a really important issue, and that was just beginning to take hold. But I think for a long time, no one really wanted to know. Yeah. Uh, we were sort of Billy No Mates. Um, now, I think it's been fortunate that the the rise in the recognition of workplace mental health, you know, we had Prince William talking about it last year at Davos. There's not a day go by now where you don't see the CEO of some big company mm -hmm. talking about these issues. So that has really helped us to raise that profile in the law. And we really want to uh, encourage the legal profession to be creative about what we could be doing to make things better. So I think we faced difficulties. Our profile was extremely low. It still is, you know, probably less than 30% of the legal profession know that we're here. Just that's right. Yeah, I just saw some recent data from the Law Society's Practicing Certificate Survey, and it's gone up from 24 to 27%. I mean, mm. it was about 16, 17% five years ago. So it has gone up quite a lot, but that's a challenge for us. Mm. And yet we're funded by the professional body. So and it's a, not just the law society, we're talking about the bar council, the bar and every, yeah, and then the equivalents in Scotland, Northern right. Ireland, and the Republic of Ireland. So 
a minuscule, like 0. 0.0000 something of everybody's practicing certificate fee finds its way to us. Mm. And so I think it would be, what we would really like to see is, is help the profession see that we are a charity that's here for them. No one has listened to as many lawyers as we have. We run a telephone helpline. We've listened to tens of thousands of people working in the legal sector. We get it. Mm. There's probably nothing we haven't heard before. And so I think we've got that experience and, and knowledge about this that we could really help professional bodies, regulators, the community as a whole, educators to think about, because we can't do this all ourselves, um, about how we can all come together to really look at these issues in a joined up way. I think there's a lot of piecemeal stuff that goes yeah. on. Um, but I think the opportunity is there now while this is so much higher up the agenda to really start thinking about it in a really pragmatic way about what we can do. Because the danger is there's a lot of cherry picking that goes on. Firms and chambers and organizations think, oh, we've got to be doing something about mental health. So they look out there and they think, oh, yeah, we'll do this, we'll do that. But there isn't really an overall strategy about, well, how are we going to embed this? Mm-hmm. You know, are we talking about it at partners meetings? Is it in our staff meetings? Is yep. it in our away days? Is it in our induction and recruitment? Is it on our website? Is it on our internet site? And that, that's where then we've got to get to. Yeah, and I think that there's, like you say, some of it could be seen as being tokenistic. Some of it is there because they feel I should be doing something. Yes. And actually, it's a selling point now, both mm. to clients and to uh, recruit uh, prospective recruits um the the this is the thing that is now the standard rather mm. than doing anything extra mm. um how do you and, and i i suspect over the time or maybe you don't know and, and maybe the statistics don't show it but has there been a reduction in the, the things that really started out the alcoholism and the the drug abuse has that have you have you seen a reduction in those things or is it just that other things are now taking over as well that that's a difficult question to answer because we don't have the data So on drugs, we get very few calls about drugs. I think the main reason being it's illegal and lawyers don't want to be fessing up to doing anything that's that's against the law. Alcohol is the drug of choice. Mm. It's legal, it's freely available, and it's it's a big part of the culture. Although that's beginning to shift with the work that the junior lawyers have, you know, have just brought out some guidance around drinking. Not to say don't drink, but to think Mm. about alternatives, because not everybody drinks. but yeah, so there isn't that data. That's something we're looking to address. So we're, we are, we've set up a research advisory group and we're gonna be launching a big piece of work in May around a cross-profession, cross-jurisdiction research project being led by Kaylee Leone, who was, is the driver behind the work that the Junior Lawyers Division have been doing in this area in England and Wales. Um, so we need that data because that's the challenge is I think a lot of organizations are not measuring this. So how do you measure the impact? Mm. And that's not easy because, okay, you could measure how many less people are are off sick or um, retention rates, but measuring changes in culture and how people Mm. feel about things is not easy. So we need to do more work around that. And it's actually something I think that firms tend to want to avoid uh, rather than expose or or, or to, Mm. to discover. Um, you mentioned the junior lawyers. I'm going to talk mm. about them uh, for a bit because they. This is exactly the thing you're talking about. Not working in silos. You've worked with them a lot now as, mm. as law care over mm. the past few years, and they've done a huge amount of work in terms of surveying their members, uh, so uh, trainees uh, through to five years qualified, um, and they've got some shocking statistics. Mm. And, and I think in some ways they're they're mirrored by your own research, mm. or, or not mm. research, but your, your records of what's, mm. been, what's mm. been happening over the last mm. few years. Mm. Um, 
But the JLD Resilience and Wellbeing Survey, I think it's been going for quite a few years now. I'm trying to think. It's three years. Is it three years? Mm-hmm. And they've seen like huge numbers of responses and really significant change as well. Um, but it's about the stress. And mm. a lot of it is about the stress that mm. junior lawyers in particular suffer. Um, do you think it is that they suffer them in particular or do you think they're more willing to talk and share about these things now because of the way that they've seen uh, change in society happen? I think there's probably a combination of two. So the American Bar Association did a very large study in 2016, largest on lawyers, shows, not surprisingly, the most vulnerable time in your legal career is making the transition into practice. So that step up to responsibility is a challenging time. Um, You know, Younger lawyers have fought off a lot of competition to get their training mm. contracts or their pupil place. They're then fighting off that competition to be kept on. And so they don't want to rock the boat. They want to be seen to be doing a great job because they want that that place. Yep. Um, so And with that comes some challenges around admitting when you're learning and things are new, you're going to make mistakes or you're going to be unsure. So you need to be in an environment where you feel you can put your hand up and say... <laughs> I'm not sure about this. You know, there's the case of Suvani James, the young lawyer who was struck off, who made a mistake and covered it up. And, you know, she probably wasn't working in an environment where she felt psychologically safe. So we need for our our younger lawyers, not necessarily younger, but junior lawyers, Mm. they need special, not special, they need good supervision and mentoring and support to help them make that transition. But then I think we also have a generation of people who talk about these issues more Mm. openly, perhaps through um, school and university. When I was at university, I do not remember there being a counseling service or anything like that. So all of that's there now. So there's much more of that uh, being talked about. So I think that makes them a particularly vocal group. Mm. Um, And and, and it is having an impact. Uh, I think BPP... Uh, law school now have introduced or are introducing a sort of a, a resilience sort of education program mm. um, to, to support their uh, their students through the changes and prepare them, I suppose, for life in, in the workplace. Um, and obviously, I'm guessing you're endorsing these things. Yeah, and I th- I think you know where I think I think it's really important that law schools start looking at these things. But I think the bigger piece about that is during that curriculum when you're studying all the legal stuff, where's the piece around managing yourself, looking after your mind? You know, because as a lawyer, your mind is your greatest asset. Mm. We're all taught at school why we need to brush our teeth and eat lots Mm. of fruit and vegetables and go for a run, but we're never really taught about why we need to look after our minds. Mm. And so as part of being the best lawyer you can, I think having more education about how we understand our emotions, how we understand how work impacts us, how to challenge difficult places, workplace behaviors all of those things i think it would be helpful if there could be uh more than just mindfulness and lunchtime seminars a bit of programming around that where Mm. we're preparing they're doing that in ireland they run a program called shrink me i'm a lawyer for their law students um so i think it's terrific it's beginning to happen but i think we have a long way to go i think there's still more to do and absolutely agree with you and and one of the things that i think that still isn't being challenged or tackle is what you talked about at the beginning, which is you're dealing with people, with clients who are in incredibly difficult positions. You might be the only point of contact for them. Uh, you may be the release for them. You may be their therapist, their advisor, their trusted friend. Mm. Um, and there's literally no training no. for people uh, about dealing with these issues. And that's not something that you necessarily develop 
a resilience to or an ab- even an ability to cope with mm. um, or to deal with throughout any of your legal training, whether that's in school or whether that's af- after, you've, mm. uh, after you've finished. Um, is there likely to ever be any change for that? Or do you think well, you just have to be that sort of person? Well, I think that, you know, understanding your emotions is, I'm now going to do a shameless plug for something that we've just <laughs> launched called Fit for Law. Uh, it's a on gift that you it's always on, on your yeah, list. Okay. You carry on, you go for it now. So, about understanding your emotions, because, you know, as a lawyer, you're pretty much trained that your emotions, you have to leave them at the door. Because if you allow your emotions to come in, that's going to cloud your rational legal mind and you're not going to be able to do your best legal work. As a human being, our emotions influence everything, the way we think and feel about things, the way we make decisions. Hmm. Whether you are dealing with a highly emotive subject, like someone who might be a refugee seeking asylum in Britain, to somebody who's um, fighting for custody of their children. But even in um, commercial and uh, big law, the finance law, there's a lot of emotion in that as well, around is the deal gonna go through, I feel very angry about the other side there being, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I think understanding our emotions and how they impact us is really important because then you've got some strategies for how you can take a step back, get some perspective, um, and help you manage some of those pressures. So we've launched this program called Fit for Law with the Open University, which was developed through focus groups with lawyers across the UK and Ireland. It's evidence-based. There was a um, educational psychologist and mental health experts involved in developing these materials. So it's all about helping lawyers understand their emotions and that's um, freely available. But I also think there should be more education about this generally because those sort of softer skills as people would like to refer them to, but your emotional intelligence is such an important part of your work as a lawyer um, because you know with the rise of artificial intelligence, I think what it's gonna mean is we're gonna value the human. No AI program is gonna be able to look you in the eye and say, I've got your back. Mm. That client wants to see a human being. Yeah. You have the AI to support you with the law, but those skills of empathy, trust, judgment, being able to weigh things up in the balance, um, understand where people are coming from, where you're coming from, are really important. And I think we should be doing more around that in legal education because they're incredibly valuable skills. Sure, there's an experiment, uh, uh, you know, to some extent that's experiential. Mm. You have to be in it to get it. You've got to have those bad experiences to learn from them. But um, I think understanding um, those aspects of work uh, will help everybody, you know, be a better lawyer um, and understand how to deal with, you know, how the work impacts them. And looking at the statistics just from the last year, are you you surprised that it's, I think 67% of women are the people that are contacting Mm. you? I'm guessing that that's been a shift over the last 30 years as well. Um, Uh, But but is that a surprise or is that just the trend? Not really, because women exhibit more help-seeking behavior than men. Um, so women are more likely to talk about things that are concerning them and seek help. So, But what we see interestingly, and I don't know how Google Analytics does this, but we know that more men look at our website. Slightly okay. more. It's about 53, 54%, I think, are men. Um, I think there's a challenge for us in the law because there's quite a lot of alpha male characteristics in the sort of legal workplace is how we challenge Um, that it's okay to talk about things that are bothering us and seek help because a lot of lawyers feel very stigmatized. You know, the stigma silences them. They don't want to talk about it for fear of being seen as weak or incompetent or not as good as somebody else. Um, So no, I'm not surprised by that because I think that follows a trend generally 
there are more women um, in the legal sector, but that yeah. as you go higher up the legal sector, then you'll find it's more male dominated. Mm, but I guess that's going to change over time. But, let's hope so. Um, so I, I, I'm keen to know more about what's coming up for, for law care, but, mm. but you as well, personally. Um, what are the things that we should be looking out for? You mentioned the survey coming out in May. So the survey's coming out in May. We've got Fit for Law. We've got Fit for Law. We launched on Time for Talk Day a, a, a new resource on the Mental Health at Work website, which is a, a um, collaboration we've done with MIND, the National Mental Health Charity, mm. and the Royal Foundation, which is the charity of... Uh, Duke of Sussex and Duke of Cambridge, but I'm not sure if they're both still in it now. Um, and so that is... We'll a, go down that, that We route. won't go down that route, fascinating as it is. Um, so that's an online resource for anybody in the legal sector and firms um, about all of the best places to find things for mental health and well-being for lawyers. Simon Davis, the president of the Law Society, is one of the bloggers for that. There's a case study from a law firm. So uh, we've launched that. So we were very excited to have the opportunity to collaborate with them. Mm. Uh, we're planning, hopefully, a conference in October to launch the results of our survey that's coming out. And what we really want that to be is a call to action with a series of recommendations um, for people across the sector to really think about what we can do um, rather than just talk about it. You know, my school motto was actions speak louder than words. Uh, my last school when I came back to the UK. And I think that's so important. I think there's a lot of words. There's, to some extent, there's quite a lot of box ticking. Yep. And that's where we, we need to move on from that yep. and see things actually start to change. Good. Yeah. Good. And I, I should say that uh, it's you're not on your own. Uh, you're supported by a, a team of, of law care workers, but also a massive team of volunteers. Yeah. And I think I'm right in saying all of them are either lawyers, former lawyers. Uh, they, they, they've got an understanding of the experiences that everyone's going through. Yeah, uh, yeah, they do. So we're, we're a staff team of six. Uh, we have a lot of volunteers on our helpline and our peer support program. We have a, a new program we launched called Champions. So we've got law champions who are practitioners across the legal sector. You've got an interest in mental health who can be out there speaking and supporting us in our work. And what we really want to do is build that social capital in the law. We want to build an army of people in the law who want to do something about this. So the more that want to come to the party, the better. Um, so, and the unique thing is that we're we're specific for the legal sector. Everybody connected to law care has worked or is working in the law, so we get it. Um, and that's all we're that's all we're about. Everything we do is geared around the legal profession. Um, and we just wish more people knew that we were here and took advantage of, of what we can offer because um, everything we do is freely available. Yeah, well, and, and for you, you're not tempted to come back and join us at the coal face? Do you know, sometimes I reflect on that. I think, oh, yeah, no, not really. I think I'm, I'm planning... Imagine how many biscuits you could have. Well, and you know what? We've been sitting throughout this entire interview. <laughs> I've had four chocolate hobnobs it. looking at me, but I've been too frightened to eat them in case there's <laughs> eating noises on this podcast. Um, I don't need to eat any more biscuits, actually. No, I think I like, I like... It's great being back in the law because it is a long time since I was there and how much it's changed. You know, there was no SRA when I was a lawyer, solicitor um and you know you meet incredibly interesting people with things to say you don't always agree with them but it's a vibrant 
environment to be in and it's always fascinating so I think I like the side of the law that I'm on I see a whole range of things um and no I don't think I have any desire to come back and be in practice uh, I think I'm too I'm, I'd have to go on a returner's course <laughs> and I'd have to study I wouldn't want to do any of that anymore I'm done with that so well no. keep doing what you're doing because it's very much appreciated <laughs> and take that back to the team as well and 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 the best of luck for this year and everything that's due to come Great, and thanks very much for having me on here. It's been fun. Good, good stuff. <laughs> Tell your friends. I will. <laughs> the Hearing. As ever, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Join us again, and why not give us a rating or subscribe? That way you'll get an alert every time we release a new episode. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.